This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for November 24th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal. And I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, this is Thanksgiving week in the United States. Perfect time for us to give thanks to those who've helped us deal with this pandemic and to limit its impact. But before we get there, I'd like to talk about a letter that we published today. We've heard a good deal about how effective vaccines have been and how that's changed over time with the emergence of new variants. We've heard quite a bit less, though, about how well infection protects against subsequent reinfection. So why is that? These sorts of studies are tough to do. Remember, Steve, it's difficult to determine who's had prior infection. We do have a couple of ways of asking that question. One is using medical records of testing. But of course, those are always going to be incomplete because not everyone who's infected gets tested, especially those who have very mild symptoms or perhaps remain completely asymptomatic. The other is using serologic evidence of previous infection. This tool's also imperfect, though, since serologic tests vary in their performance characteristics with both false positive and false negative rates. And in a population, those can have enormous impact on estimates, depending on the prevalence. In addition, once someone is reinfected, their serologic tests will turn positive. So at that point, serology is not helpful in distinguishing a first from a second episode of infection. Eric, I think this highlights one of the key challenges with SARS-CoV-2, which is the silent transmission in the majority of cases. And that requires us to have technology to help us understand who has or hasn't been infected. And as you pointed out, serology is good to allow us to understand who's been infected in the past at least once. A reinfection is much trickier with serology. And PCR enables us to understand who's acutely infected. And how we use these different tools can provide unnecessary insights in the biology of transmission and infection. So with all of those caveats, we now have some population-based data from Qatar, a country that's performed extensive testing and has an excellent national record system. So what did this group of investigators do and what did they learn? This group focused on determining the risk of severe disease after reinfection. Cutter experienced a few different waves of infection, initially caused by the original reference strain of the virus and subsequently by the alpha and beta variants. The investigators looked at all those who had a record of a positive PCR test for infection and who subsequently developed a second PCR positive episode of infection at least three months after the first. They excluded anyone who was vaccinated between episodes. They then compared the rates and severity of disease in reinfected individuals with unvaccinated people who developed COVID-19 without a history of a positive test. They then matched each reinfection case with five primary infection cases using sex, age group, nationality, and the date of the positive test. They used criteria set by the WHO to define disease severity. So the median time between the first infection and the second infection was 277 days. Reinfected cases were 88% less likely to develop severe disease and 90% less likely to be hospitalized than those with primary infection. There were seven deaths in the primary infection group, but none among those had been previously infected. There are limitations that make the interpretation a little less straightforward. 
For example, the uninfected population likely included those who'd been infected but had not been diagnosed, though this would likely increase the relative effectiveness against infection in the study. So altogether, this provides very encouraging data. The risk estimates resemble those seen after vaccination with the mRNA vaccines. The important caveat is that all of these data were collected before the emergence of the Delta variant. And of course, we can't use these data to make a direct comparison with any vaccines. So Eric, I think these data show us the value of an integrated healthcare system where key medical records such as vaccination history, testing and the results and hospitalizations can all be integrated across large swaths of the population. And they provide some insights into variant behavior and the implications of previous or prior immunity. I think that these data are particularly valuable because they help us understand what prior infection means for subsequent infection. And that allows us some insight that pre-existing immunity may ameliorate or decrease the severity of subsequent infection. This shouldn't be surprising as we see this with other pathogens. It's just very important to establish it for SARS-CoV-2. It has implications for vaccines because again, the concept of prior immunity, but it's important for us to understand how natural infection impacts future infection, particularly with variants or at least the variants studied here. I agree, Lindsay, and I think this helps address one of the big questions out there. When you give a vaccine, in the case of almost all the vaccines that are being used in the world right now, they are to a single protein, the spike protein. But infection, of course, can elicit immunity to a large number of viral proteins. So it's possible that natural infection could produce a broader antigenic response, a, a broader immune response. And in addition, natural infection produces the antigens over a different time course than the presentation after vaccination. So it's entirely possible that you could have a better immune response, a worse immune response, effective, ineffective. It's really difficult to guess without actually measuring it. These data are far from perfect, but they do suggest that the protection elicited by natural infection is very comparable to what we see with a pretty good vaccine. Um, It's not clear if it's better. It's also not clear if it's worse, but it's not bad. So Eric, I think that point is really important to push a little bit. The vaccines elicit immune responses to the spike protein. Natural infection should elicit immune responses across the whole genome. What we measure to understand protection, and I put that in quotes, largely is associated with spike protein immune responses. So I think we as a community need to be a little more thoughtful in how we define protection against SARS-CoV-2, because it largely is focused on the known vaccine responses and is very likely much more complex than that. So Eric, in your description of the study, You said there's certainly been a lot that's gone wrong during this pandemic, and we've talked about some of those things in the past, but today let's talk about what's gone right. I'm going to ask each of you to tell us what you've seen that's had a positive impact 
on the course of COVID-19. Let's start with you, Eric. So it's great to go first because I get to take the easiest one here. And I'm going to go with the incredible pace of moving from the laboratory to the clinic. It's been amazing to see the development of vaccines from a sequence provided by Chinese scientists to American and European researchers who very, very quickly came up with a vaccine that worked initially in animals and then in humans and escalated to large clinical trials that could give us confidence in both the safety and efficacy of the vaccines. And then the pace of the scale up has been perhaps a little bit frustrating, certainly at the beginning, but it has still been amazing to think that we can deliver an entire course of vaccine to hundreds of millions of people over the course of several months. So Eric, I agree we have much to be thankful for in the response. And there's much we can and need to do better. And there is much that we have done quite well, we being the global community in response. And I couldn't agree with you more that one of the shining stars of this pandemic, if you can see positive in such a horrific event, is that science works. I couldn't agree more. And that using science and the scientific process and the evidence and data that are generated, we can iterate and figure out how to respond with countermeasures that really work, like developing more than one vaccine and starting deployment within a single calendar year from the identification of the pathogen. I think that's truly remarkable, speaks to investment into the scientific process. Some of the stumbles in scaling speaks to the need for more investment in the scientific process so that we can respond more nimbly. And I think the scientists in this process with the iterative methodologic improvement and the kinds of study designs that we've seen from our discussions 22 months ago, where we had anecdotes and individual patient care experiences with medicines off the shelf, that many of which did not work, but there was an iterative process from that individual clinician observation to systematic study, to large networks that have been created incredibly rapidly evolving the study designs methodologically so rigor can be brought to it so we could make proper inferences to what does or doesn't work, both with off-the-shelf medications and treatments, as well as newly innovated treatments. So I give two thumbs up, if one can use that concept here, to the scientific process and to a full investment in that process so we can iterate against diseases like this quickly. To give full credit to governments, particularly the U.S. government, invested heavily in science right from the beginning, and those investments paid off. Science isn't predictable. We didn't know that there could be a vaccine. We didn't know that there might eventually be effective antivirals uh, for this disease. Uh, so this was a risky investment, but it was an investment that needed to be made, and all credit to the folks who made it. Since you are noting those who substantially invested from sponsors like governments and foundations to scientists who did the studies, the volunteers as well, who took the risks as well as participated in the process. 
and they have enabled us to figure out what does or doesn't work. A really good point. I think that if you look across clinical studies done around the world, we're talking hundreds of thousands of participants in these trials. And especially at the beginning when we had no idea how to treat this disease, how to prevent the disease, these people were taking risks on our behalf and we want to salute them. So Lindsay, what do you see that's gone right? I think one of the most remarkable events in my career as a clinician, physician, was when we saw SARS-CoV-2 emerge. We saw the devastation in parts of China, parts of Europe like Italy. We saw it arrive in New York and spread across the U.S. In my own personal experience in caring for patients, the healthcare providers, we had an unknown pathogen We didn't understand the biology, the transmission. We had such a tremendous knowledge deficit other than healthcare systems were overwhelmed like a tsunami hitting different communities with a few week delay at most. So I cannot say enough to the healthcare workers who I somewhat look at as firefighters running into a fire to save lives running into patients' rooms who were severely ill and under tremendous infection control, challenging situations to prevent transmission to others, to the healthcare workers, and for the healthcare workers to protect themselves and their families as these challenges unfolded. So Steve, from my perspective, some of the biggest heroes are all the healthcare workers who responded to taking care of patients in the setting where we had such little understanding of the pathogen, but knew its severity of illness, rapidity of spread, and inadequate countermeasures such as personal protective equipment or other materials to protect ourselves because we needed to scale up. So I think they are some of the biggest heroes in this uh, unfolding event. Lindsay, we both remember the time at the beginning of the epidemic when we would get dressed up in all kinds of protective equipment and then take our clothes off before we went home um, because of fear of transmitting disease from our contaminated garments. We didn't have a very good understanding of how transmission occurred then. There just was a lot of disease and it was a frightening time. So I totally echo what you say that a lot of healthcare workers who spent a good deal of time together with patients and put themselves at unknown risk, continued to care for these individuals. And and many had an impact on their lives, saving lives or comforting people toward the ends of their lives. Um, And they did it without knowing what kinds of risks they were taking. So I think, Um, I would throw your shout out to these people. It was really an act of courage. And part of what I find particularly challenging as it unfolded early on, when PPE and infection control required such barriers, and many of our patients died, the loneliness of those patients because their families couldn't see them, the technology had not yet been sorted out to facilitate communication rapidly given the complexity. How our nurses, our 
physician's assistants, our, our trainees, our colleagues, all were incredibly compassionate in caring for really sick patients, many of whom died alone. And to soften that and to try and provide the care that we all so believe in. But it was incredibly challenging given the fear involved with silent transmission across the board. And I am truly amazed at the quality of care that I saw, unfortunately, so many times. Lindsay, let me pivot to another topic, which is the public health response. There's no question that around the world, the public health response has been quite uneven. And there have been many areas of substantial concern. But there also have been success stories in some countries which have been able to implement measures that really helped contain disease and helped save lives. This was very difficult. The decision to restrict people's movements, to keep them home from jobs or school, that's a very difficult one. It has a major impact on lives. It has a major impact on economies. And yet, there are two sides to the story because not taking those measures costs lives. And I think that some countries tried extremely hard to limit the impact of disease, and there are some success stories. Some of those success stories were helped by geography. It's easier to do it in New Zealand or Iceland or even Australia, but somewhere in countries that had lots of continuing exposures like Singapore, um, like Taiwan, and they were able to not only make good decisions about public health, but to motivate their populations to comply with what are really onerous restrictions. So give a tip of my hat to them. I, I agree, Eric. I think that part of what we learned is how a pathogen can exploit open society. And rapid transport, which is a reality of today that was different 200 years ago in terms of how pathogens could spread. I think 100 years ago with the 1918 flu, it also had different kinetics and how it spread. With rapid transit, pathogens can spread incredibly rapidly and how societies respond to that, either through social mechanisms, such as in China's response, or geographic advantages, as you said, with certain island nations. But I think the issue of how we strengthen our public health infrastructure to be able to leverage different circumstances to prevent transmission. And I think our public health agencies were under incredible stress given the unknowns and the rapidity with which silent transmission occurred. And I think this speaks to how tools were developed. One, knowledge, so they could make science-based decisions on how to deploy public health procedures, but also developing technologies such as testing and other ways in which to rapidly inform the response. And so I think a lot of tools have been developed. We need to learn how to develop them faster we need to continue to learn how to utilize them. But I think our public health agencies, both big and small, you know, in the local level and the national level, 
are so critical to being able to slow down transmission, if not stop it, that allows time for countermeasure development. Also like to go beyond the agencies to the individual public health officials and public health workers. Many of them have taken a lot of abuse throughout the epidemic because they had to make many unpopular decisions. And yet in another act of courage, a lot of them stuck to their guns and were able to help the situation despite ongoing and still now continuing difficult circumstances. So Eric, I think this reminds us of how connected we are with such an easily transmissible pathogen that our public health agencies had to respond to. In the US, it became readily apparent early on the inequitable burden of disease. And as we developed effective countermeasures such as vaccines, it became clear the need to disseminate them to all communities who would benefit. And I think this is something that we need to do better given how clearly the inequitable burden of illness emerged. And for that, I think it is terrific that we're moving in the right direction and that our communities are galvanizing together to do more to ensure that these beneficial therapies like vaccines make it across the nation to everyone who can benefit. I agree, Lindsay. There were a number of people who recognized the inequities inherent in disease right from the very start of the epidemic when some communities, particularly Black and African-American communities, were being disproportionately affected by disease, in part because of exposure, and were suffering more deaths. So many people have made efforts to try to make things better. And it's not a complete success, but it has been pretty successful in that, especially when it comes to vaccines, the penetration into these more vulnerable communities has been much better. In some cases, there are enormous success stories. So if the problem hadn't been identified early, and if there weren't steps taken early, these communities would have suffered that much more than they already have. Eric, part of what I hope we learn from this is the importance of looking at health benefits and making sure it reaches all communities. And COVID demonstrated the many weaknesses in our healthcare system. And I hope we continue to learn from this to be able to better deliver the care to all of our communities. In that regard, let me add another thing that's gone right. Although there's clearly a lot of work still to be done, the continued advocacy for bringing vaccines to low and middle income countries is heartening. It's, it's been seen as a, a moral necessity and also as a vital public health action that will protect all of us around the globe. I agree, Steve. I think there is a lot of room for improvement here. There are many countries that have received almost no vaccine. But the fact that there are coordinated global efforts, which have had an effect on many of the manufacturers and many of the funders and funding agencies and governments, is encouraging. The need's certainly there. 
and increasingly the need has been recognized by those who can do something about it. And that's largely because of the advocacy of many organizations and trying to bring vaccines and later drugs, hopefully, to many of these affected countries. I mean, I think this highlights several very important issues. Much debate has gone on about third doses in the U.S. or elsewhere in the world. So I think that this has demonstrated a variety of things that have gone well or could go better as we think globally. One of the key elements is not only the science of what works, but also our manufacturing capacity. And can we go to scale for the global need? And we've seen this with vaccines. And part of the solution, in my view, to being able to deliver vaccines to everyone who needs it around the world, which is, as you say, Steve, good for us as individuals and the world in general, and it's the right thing to do, is ensuring that we have manufacturing capacity that's accessible to all who could benefit and that the science can direct us as to who can benefit at what frequency. And having those work in parallel is incredibly important. A corollary to that, that we will have to think much about as a global community is the cost. And that is a challenge that still has to be fully vetted as to how do the economics of being able to develop these therapies and manufacture them and deliver them in high-income countries and low to middle-income countries, how do we work that out? Realizing that delivering vaccines to everybody is a community benefit. So we have to find the right models to enable this to go to scale. That's a good jumping off point to a slightly different topic, which is antivirals. As of today, we've been hearing about new antivirals and existing antivirals that can be administered to outpatients and at least at the level of a press release appear to have very good effects. If that is true, we could end up preventing a lot of serious disease, hospitalization, and and death. So that would be a great addition to the highly effective vaccines we have right now. But what's also encouraging, along with these very positive data, is the announcement by at least one company that they'll be manufacturing drugs in low and middle income countries um, and make them available in those countries. So at least one manufacturer has planned from the very beginning to make these very potentially valuable drugs uh, widely available. So I hope that that represents a model going forward for all of our interventions, that we provide some way that people will have access to them, not just in the richest countries, but throughout the world. But Eric, I, I think scalability is such an important element for any effective therapy and scalability to all who could benefit, which is a global issue. And for antiviral drugs, it may be slightly different math than for vaccines, where presumably with vaccines, it's 7 billion plus people times multiple doses. But how do we develop the global infrastructure to go to scale for those who can benefit for a given intervention 
and then have the delivery infrastructure to deliver it to those who could benefit. And Steve, as you said, it's not just good for us, it really is the right thing to do. And we as a global community need to figure out and overcome the obstacles to achieving this. I don't want to end without giving some local thanks as well. We've been able to put out a journal every week throughout the epidemic under the same trying circumstances that everyone has, but also with an enormous increase in the volume of work that's been required just because the amount of information on COVID has been gigantic. We've been able to produce a podcast virtually every week. I think we missed one um, since almost the start of the epidemic. And we've been able to do that because our editors and our staff uh, have really gone over and above to put in the time to not only get the work done, but to get the work right, to get information out there with the same sort of rigor that we use all the time. So I really want to thank my colleagues, um, Lindsay, Steve, uh, to Tim and Scott, who help us with recording. And then the broader group um, at the Journal and the Mass Medical Society who have enabled us to get through this time, keep us sane, and really, I think, help shape the medical and public health responses to uh, the epidemic. Can't beat that. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.